Good morning, everyone. How you doing? Good. You ready to study God's Word today? I'm ready. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to this passage. Um, this morning's message is going to be a little bit different than uh, in the past. I'm going I'm to tell you about that in a little bit, but I just want to let you know as we're getting started here this morning, you see this flyer that's in your program when you came in today. Go ahead and pull that out, if you would, please. I just want to let you know it is not going to offend me at all if you fill out the back of this while I'm preaching. So you go right ahead. Just put your name, phone number, email, all that stuff. Check off what you want to do. Give this to Kelly back in the lobby, and that way we can make sure we get you signed up. Because we, want you to, we would not want you to miss out on the opportunity that it is to have an impact on our children here. It is an important job that you are doing. So thank you for all of you who serve. Now, that was my public service announcement. You are also going to want your program because in it today, we have some pretty extensive sermon notes. And there's a reason for this. This passage that we're going to look at today has kind of forced me into doing a different type of message, a different format. And some of you are going to love this format, and some of you may struggle with this format a little bit, and that's okay. It's good for us to have some variety here in what we cover and the way we do things to keep things fresh. We don't want them to ever be stale, so we'll approach things in different ways and different formats sometimes. But the reason why I'm going to use this format today is because... The passage we're going to look at is incredibly complicated. It's not just complicated, it's confusing. And it's not just confusing, it really requires a good working knowledge of Old Testament temple law in order to interpret it correctly. It's a challenging passage. In fact, I really was kicking myself all week that I didn't have Andrew preach this week instead of last week, because I would have loved for him to just take this thing and run with it. Here's what I want you to do. In that program that you've got, there are notes on the back. And at the very top, you're going to see three lines. This is going to be your roadmap for today, okay? I'm not going to do this every week, but today, you're probably going to need this. In fact, you may actually want to go back and get one of these if you didn't grab one at the doors. They've got these on stands out there. So, and for, at the very top, I've just got a couple of lines here that I want you to fill in. The, the second and third line write unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. Unmet expectations are some of the most disappointing things we can face in life. When someone doesn't meet your expectations, it's an incredibly devastating thing. Or when you take a a nice, juicy-looking apple and bite into it, and it's rotten, and it doesn't meet your expectations, is that a nice feeling? I've done that before, thank you for that response. Is that a nice feeling? No! It didn't meet your expectations. In fact, some of the best pranks are based on unmet expectations. Did you know that? You set someone up for one expectation and you actually deliver something else. I've got some examples for you. Believe it or not, those are onions. Now, I love caramelized onions. That's not exactly what this is. This is a caramel-covered onion. Can you imagine someone giving this to you, say, in the fall You think it's a candied apple, you bite into it, you find out if it's an onion. That is pure evil, okay? (laughs) Or this one. How rotten is that? Here's one where a coworker puts some M&Ms, some Reese's Pieces, and some Skittles in a bowl. And just left them out in the break room for people. And they came back to find this note. Whoever you are, you have no soul. You should be ashamed. 
Unmet expectations can be pretty funny, but they can also be pretty painful. Like if you invested a lot of your money into a particular investment thinking that it was going to make you rich and you lost everything. Or if you trusted in someone and you thought they were a trustworthy friend and then you found out that they betrayed your trust. Or if you went to a party and you thought it was just going to be a few friends hanging out and then somebody started bringing out some substances that you've tried to stay away from. Or maybe you thought someone liked you for you until you found out that they were actually interested in something else, not just you. Or maybe you thought it was till death do us part, until something replaced death as a reason to leave you. Our unmet expectations can cause unbelievable anguish, and you probably all remember a time when something or someone did not live up to your expectations. Do you remember the pain that that caused, the hurt that that caused? Did you want justice in that situation? And what I want to talk about this morning actually is not our unmet expectations. I want us to feel the pain of unmet expectations, but I don't want to talk about our unmet expectations. The point of my message today is actually God's unmet expectations. And that's your first filling. God's unmet expectations. You see, God has expectations for us that are clearly communicated in His Word, the Bible. And the key to understanding our text this morning is understanding God's expectations for His people. So with that in mind, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to share some context that I hope will help you understand a little bit better our complicated, confusing passage this morning. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Lord, we're so grateful to have your word. We're so thankful that you invest in us and you teach us and you continue to develop us and grow us despite the fact that we are humans who make mistakes all the time. God, we pray this morning that you would speak through your word, that you would communicate to us how you want us to live, where you want to convict us, how you want us to grow. And Lord, I pray that you would just teach us some things this morning that we can use to better live for you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So four pieces of context for you, and I made these notes that you can fill in so you'll remember, because I really want you to hold on to this. Four things that I would love for you to remember as we study our passage this morning. The first one is this, a house of prayer for all nations. Would you say that back to me? Good job. All right. We're going to get this. God designed the temple to be a house of prayer for all nations. I'm just going to share some scriptures with you to demonstrate this. Isaiah 56, 7 says, I will bring them, this is God speaking, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called, this is critical, a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. Not just the people of Israel. This is in the Old Testament. God is saying, my temple, my place where people come to worship me will be a house of prayer for all nations. I want other people who are not part of Judaism to come and join the Jewish people in worshiping me and praying to me with the whole family of God. And this was his expectation. 
God's expectation was that the Jewish leaders would welcome non-Jewish people, people of other backgrounds, other ethnicities, into the temple to worship God together. That was his expectation. In fact, he actually designed the temple, and this is the temple complex right here. This, by the way, is the Fortress Antonia, which is going to come up later. But what you need to know now is the temple complex right here will give you a closer view. And this area right here in the temple, that is called the Court of the Gentiles. It is the place where non-Jewish people were supposed to be able to come into the temple without disrupting the tradition of Jewish worship, which is happening in the inner courts. Without disrupting that, Gentiles were supposed to have a place where they could come in and also worship and pray to God. It was designed this way from the very beginning. It was not meant to be this exclusive thing. God intended, God's expectation was for Jewish religious leaders to welcome all people into His house. Number two point of context. A temple tax. Say that back to me. A temple tax that God instituted to care for a place of worship. We see this in Exodus chapter 30. Each person who is counted must give a small piece of silver, that's important, as a sacred offering to the Lord. This payment is half a shekel based on the sanctuary shekel, which equals 20 geras. Receive this ransom money from the Israelites and use it for the care of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle would eventually become the temple. It will bring the Israelites to the Lord's attention, and it will purify your lives. So the Israelites were supposed to bring a temple tax, a ransom, a piece of ransom money, something that they were supposed to give a shekel to be able to support the ongoing care of, in this case, the tabernacle, and eventually that transferred on to the temple. God instituted this temple tax that they were supposed to give. Now, by the time of Jesus, things had changed a little bit. The uh, Israelites were overcome, of course, by the Greeks and the Romans, and the Romans who had authority over the Jewish people did not want them becoming autonomous, and so they were not allowed to mint Hebrew shekels. That poses a problem because the text says they're supposed to give a silver coin. Roman coins were not very pure in their metals. And so instead of allowing the Jewish leaders to have Hebrew shekels, which would have led to more autonomy, the Romans allowed them to continue to mint sort of an older currency called a Tyrian shekel. This had no national pride for the Israelites, but it was 94% pure silver. And so this was acceptable, this old kind of outdated currency was acceptable to pay the temple tax. The only problem is no one carried around Tyrian shekels anymore. You couldn't exactly go get change in Tyrian shekels. Everyone used Roman coins. So what would happen is that pilgrims on their way for Passover to Jerusalem would come in, use their Roman coins, exchange them for some Tyrian shekels. It was like buying a token for the temple. Like you go to Chuck E. Cheese and you put in some money and you get these tokens back that it's like, why couldn't I just have used my quarters? It's because they want want you in their system, right? They want you to have to invest in their system in these tokens and so you go use all those tokens there and if you don't use them, they're worthless. It's not like you can just go change them back. So they had this sort of special temple token system with Tyrian shekels to pay the temple tax. Number three, an animal sacrifice. Would you say that back to me? An animal sacrifice. God instituted animal sacrifices as a covering for sin and to point to the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, which is Jesus Christ. We see this in Leviticus chapter 5. But if you cannot afford to bring a sheep, God says, you may bring to the Lord two turtle doves or two young pigeons as the penalty for your sin. 
One of the birds will be for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Now for most of the Jews who traveled a ways to get to Jerusalem for the Passover, it was much easier to buy an animal in Jerusalem than it was to try to bring one with them on the journey. So they would wait until they got to Jerusalem. They would exchange their Roman coins for Tyrian shekels to pay the temple tax, and they would buy some animals, whether it was a sheep or uh, turtle doves or young pigeons, whatever it was, and that's how they would go into the temple and fulfill their obligations to worship. Now, some enterprising business people figured out that they could make a lot of money off of these two needs. And so they set up shops. This is Jerusalem in the time of, around the time of Jesus. Here is the temple compound. This is a place called the Mount of Olives, and that is where these merchants set up their shops to exchange some Tyrian shekels for Roman coins and some animals to take in for the sacrifices. And as pilgrims were coming through here, they would stop over here, they would get their stuff, they would go into the temple, and they would fulfill their obligations to worship. Now, at some point, the temple leaders and the merchants got together and they said, you know what? We see an opportunity to make an awful lot of money here. If we just work together, we could actually become rich. What if, remember that court Remember that court of the Gentiles, this one right here? What if we took that whole thing and turned that into our marketplace? What if we made that place, that place where the non-Jewish people were supposed to be able to come in and worship God and pray to God together? What if we set up all our shops in there and made it sort of a one-stop worship shop for everything that is needed in the temple? And because we're all working together, we can charge whatever we want and we can make a lot of money. And so that's what they did. They brought their shops into the court of the Gentiles, converted that space into a marketplace, and all of these merchants got rich, and the temple leaders got rich, profiteering off the worship of God, price gouging, if you will. And all of this happened, this is important, all of this happened under the authority of the temple leaders and the high priest, Caiaphas. Now, for someone who is really familiar with the Old Testament, this might make you think, and for these Jewish people that were devout and well-studied, this should make them think of Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 says this, Even now, if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop your murdering. And only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. Then I will let you stay in this land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think You can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours. Then come here, stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again. Don't you yourselves admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves? Surely, I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. 
And the fourth piece of context that I want you to remember this morning is a den of thieves. Just to make sure we're all there, say it back to me. God warned the Israelites against thinking that religious activity at the temple without godly living would save them from their sinfulness. So here is all the context that I want you to remember. Number one is a house of? Number two? Three? And four? We're going to read in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. So you can go ahead and turn there if you want. If you want to use the Version Bible app, you can pull that out and find First Free Church under events. You can follow along there in the same version I'll be using, which is the New Living Translation. And uh, if you don't know how to get that open, you can go to efree.org slash Bible. Pull that up. It'll give you all the instructions for where you need to go. As we go through this passage together, what I want you to do is look for those four pieces of context that we just studied and see if you can find them in the text. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat from your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of or turn it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because of the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying first, forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Again, they entered Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right to do them? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. If you answer one question, Jesus replied, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Answer me. They talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. 
So they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. What is going on here? You see why this can be so confusing? There is so much to unpack here. There's enough for several sermons here. But what I want us to do is just step back and try to see the big picture. Try to see what Mark is getting at by putting these stories here. These stories about the fig tree and the temple cleansing. They've confused many people because they seem so uncharacteristic of Jesus, right? I mean, the Jesus I know is this loving, gracious, compassionate, gentle, tender-hearted guy. The guy who said, let the little children come to me and don't forbid them. Such a gentle, compassionate guy. And then all of a sudden he finds a tree he doesn't like. So he curses it. And then he goes all rage mode in the temple. He busts out an Indiana Jones whip. The other gospels tell us he literally took a whip. Now, I don't know if he actually whipped anybody, but he had it in his hand. He was brandishing, if you will. And he threw out all the money changers and the people selling animals. And what is happening here? This is not the Jesus that I know. And so many people have found these passages to be so confusing because how do I reconcile the Jesus I see here with the Jesus I see elsewhere? The Jesus I see here almost seems irrational and unhinged. Like why take it out on that poor tree? What did that tree ever do to you? Mark said it wasn't the season for figs anyway. You shouldn't have been expecting fruit on that tree. What is going on here? And as I've talked with people about this passage leading up to this week, studied it, one of the interesting things that a number of people have said is, you know what, I always knew that was in there, but I never really paid much attention to it because I'm just not sure what to do with it. Like, what do we do with the fact that Jesus did this stuff? How does any of this make any sense? So here's what you need to know. In ancient literature, in the Bible especially, And even especially in the book of Mark, the way stories are ordered and put together means something. There is an intentional pattern going on in this passage. And so we could chunk this up and make it into a bunch of different sermons and study the nuances of each section. And there's some good stuff there. We're not going to dive into it at that level this morning because we just want to take a step back and go, what is Mark trying to communicate by this chunk of stories here? What is the central point? Because that's the way it worked. You put stories next to each other to communicate a central theme. And what is that? What is Mark driving at here? And the pattern you need to know for this morning is pretty simple. A, B, A, B. That's the pattern. It's in your notes. Here's what it looks like. A, fig tree cursed. B, temple cleansed. A, Fig tree withered, B, temple leaders rejected. And now what I want to do is take us back through these stories. I'm going to leave this on the screen and walk through how they fit together and relate to each other. Jesus and his crew are coming from Bethany over the Mount of Olives on their way to Jerusalem. And as they go, Jesus sees a fig tree. He's hungry, so he goes over to see if it has any figs. But Mark says it's not the season for figs. What's the deal here? Did Jesus not know this? Did Jesus not know it wasn't the time of the year when the figs would be producing? It was in full leaf. It looked like a beautiful tree. But Jesus ought to know there are no figs on this tree. Did he not know that? And why did he have to curse it? 
Why did he have to curse this tree so that it would wither up and die? Isn't that kind of plant cruelty? I mean, what did this plant ever do to him? Why couldn't he have just looked at this tree and said, Behold, bear fruit. And little figs would pop up all over the place. And the disciples would go, wow, that was so cool. He was able to make fruit out of nothing. This guy's like, uh, like, a, like a vending machine. Just food pops out whenever we want it. It's amazing. Why didn't Jesus do that? He could have, right? We know he can produce food. If it was really about him being hungry, then why would he curse the tree? And the why is because it's not about the figs. It's not about the figs, it's not about the hunger, it's not about the tree. None of this is about any of that stuff. Mark even gives us a hint to that by saying, hey, it wasn't the season for figs, by the way. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew he wasn't walking over to a tree that was covered in figs. He used it as an object lesson. He used it in the same way that he uses many devices as he's walking around throughout his life teaching people, he uses the temple, he uses fishing nets, he uses food, he uses miracles, he uses storms, he uses waters, he uses wells, he uses all these different things as object lessons. You might call them living parables. Nothing Jesus does happens by accident. He uses all these different things to teach a principle, to teach truth, not just in his stories, not just in his teaching, but also in his actions, in the things that he does. And the reason Jesus goes over to this tree, knowing that it's not going to have any figs, curses this tree in full view and earshot of his disciples is because he is trying to teach them. It's not about the tree. It's not about the figs. It's about the lack of fruit. There is a lack of fruit here that Jesus is trying to make a point about. And after seeing no fruit on the tree, with the disciples watching and listening, he curses it. Then he goes into Jerusalem and into the temple. And what do they find there? In the court of the Gentiles, that place that was supposed to be welcoming for all people from all backgrounds to be able to worship God and pray to God, it has been converted now into a marketplace engineered for the purpose of profiteering off of God's worship. The place that God intended to be a place where all people could come and pray to him and worship him is now a place for greed. And so Jesus makes a statement that any Jewish leader should have immediately recognized. The passages we read earlier, I wanted you to have that context. Jesus says the temple is to be a place of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of of thieves. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you didn't meet God's expectations. See, God's expectation for you was fruit, and yet look at what you have done. God's expectation for you was to create an environment where all kinds of people from all sorts of different backgrounds could come together and worship God together and you have taken the very space that God designed for that to happen and turned it into a place for your greed. God's expectation was fruit for the nations. Jesus and his team then leave the city for the night. They go back almost certainly to Bethany, over the mountain again. Then they come back the same way the next morning. They pass the fig tree again. The disciples notice that it has withered from the roots up and they ask Jesus about it. Jesus found a tree without fruit. He cursed it and then it died the next day. And instead of addressing what the disciples really want to know, which is what's the deal with you and this tree, man? What's its problem? 
Jesus then teaches them a lesson about fully trusting in God and the incredible power and results that come from fully trusting in God. But they must also become expert forgivers. That's the caveat. You have to fully trust in God. No doubt you must become expert forgivers. And these were two things that the Jewish religious leaders had absolutely failed at. They were not trusting in God. They were trusting in two things, money and power. And they had set up the temple enterprise to generate those things for them, money and power. And they were not very good at forgiving. They had all kinds of grudges, especially against the Gentiles, the Romans, The Samaritans, who they accused of being half-Gentile because they were Jewish people, who they thought intermarried with Gentile people, and it's never really been proven whether they were or weren't. There are different theories. But regardless, what happened is the Samaritans, who wanted to come and be able to worship in the temple at some time, the Jewish leaders said, no, you can't come in here. There's a court of the Gentiles. There is space for them in the temple, even designed in such a way that it won't interfere with the ongoing worship of the Jewish people together in the inner parts of the temple. But there is space made for them. And yet the Jewish leaders, the temple leaders, said, we don't want these people in here. And so they expelled them. You can't come worship God here. In fact, it was so bad. Get the irony in this. It was so bad that temple leaders instructed the Jewish faithful as a part of their worship in the temple to pray curses upon the Samaritans. Get that. And Jesus comes in and finds this court overrun by this marketplace. Now let's be really clear about something here. There is absolutely no place in God's family for any kind of racism. From the very beginning, God has designed His worship to be inclusive of all people. Even while He had this special chosen people, Israel, His expectation for them was that they would be bearing fruit among the Gentiles, among the nations. And we have examples throughout Scripture of people who were not Jewish people coming and joining in the true worship of God. That was God's expectation. Not that background or ethnicity or skin color or anything would come in the way of that. And that's why Jesus says here, a house of prayer, not just a house of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. Because you took the very place that God intended to be inclusive, and you kicked people out. Jesus goes back into the temple where the leaders then confronted him. They were already planning to kill him. So they asked him, under whose authority did you do these things? You see, it was the temple leaders who had authorized all of this. They thought they had the authority. They authorized these merchants. They had the permission to do this. And who did Jesus think he was to come in here and mess up their racket? Now, if Jesus says that he did this under God's authority, they've got him because it's the priests that speak for God. So if he's doing this under God's authority, now they're at odds with each other. These guys have guards and people that they can take care of business with him. And they're planning and trying to trap him to see how they can kill him. And Jesus knows that it's not his time yet. So rather than than allow them to take him and kill him at this time, there's more that he still needs to do. He sets a little trap for them. And he says, I'll tell you my authority if you tell me John the Baptist's authority. And if the leaders say that John's authority came from heaven, 
then anyone can go, well, then why didn't you believe him? Why were you so against him? But if they say that it wasn't from heaven and it was merely human, the crowd is going to become upset because the crowd reveres John as a prophet. And it's not that these leaders, I think, were in particular very concerned about the crowd. What I think they were concerned about is that fortress Antonia that's just to the north of the temple, where the Roman troops stand monitoring the activity in the temple courtyard to, be, to have an early detection system for any kind of rebellion or uprising. They figured there was a good chance if there was going to be an uprising, it would start with some religious fervor in the temple area. And so at times they would come in there and they would squash some kind of a issue taking place in the temple because they were afraid it might turn into a rebellion. And so the temple leaders who have this kind of racket going on, they could lose their whole temple enterprise that day if the crowd becomes upset, the Roman guards notice this, and they march in there with their army, and they might just decide that day, this thing's over, we're not going to risk it anymore. They sort of let it continue this far, but at some point they're just going to cut it off, and what if this is that day? And Jesus threatens their racket by trapping them with this question. You know, I think Jesus was a pretty good chess player. Not that he ever played it. He knew what he was doing. And look at who he's refusing in verse 27. The leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders, they brought out the big guns. These were the big guys who were there, the lead, not just the priests, the leading priests. The teachers of religious law, the elders, they're all there together. And Jesus, this one guy, is confronting them and basically saying, I do not acknowledge your authority. I am not going to tell you what you want to hear from me. In fact, I'm going to ask you a question and put you on the spot in a way that they know they cannot answer. Why? Because they didn't live up to God's expectations. They didn't bear fruit. And Jesus will eventually tear down this temple system. He'll use the Romans in part to do that. He will will prophesy that he will tear down this temple system just as he cursed that fig tree. And the temple system will eventually go away. It will be replaced. And should the disciples have faith that Jesus will be able to do it? Well, just look what he did to that tree. See, it's an object lesson to demonstrate that yes, Jesus has the authority and the power to do what he says he will do. And it's a picture of what happens when God expects fruit and finds none. Well, I don't know about you, but that leads me to a natural question. If you're internalizing this, if you're thinking about this, if you're applying this to your life, I am now asking the question, then what does God expect as my fruit? What does he expect from me? What fruit does God expect? And as I've been studying this over the last couple of weeks here, I look throughout Scripture to find every instance where the Bible says something is fruit for someone who follows God. What does the Bible say is fruit? I found four things. Four things that are literally referred to as the fruit of believers in different areas. And I just want to share them with you today and look at and examine the fruit that is in our lives. The first one's in Galatians 5.22. It says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. And listen, if you are walking with God every day, you should be growing in these things every single day. The first kind of fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. It's how we live, the fruit of the Spirit. And as we grow in God, we should be known more and more by having those nine things characterize our lives. The attitude of our life should be more and more loving and joyful and and faithful and self-controlled. Not that any of us have arrived there yet, but we're on that journey of producing that fruit in our lives. There's another kind of fruit in Colossians 1.10. It says, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. And literally in the Greek, that is, in every good work, bringing forth fruit. In every good work, bringing forth fruit. And so this is the fruit of good works, what we do. The fruit of good works, what we do. What acts of service are you involved in that are making a difference in the lives of other people? In the name of Jesus. What are you doing throughout the week that is producing fruit by your good works? What are you doing to serve others in the name of Jesus? What are you doing to care for people? What are you doing to disciple? What are you doing to grow others up? The Bible says that it's those kinds of good works that are producing fruit for us. They're fruit makers. If you were to take your week and analyze, maybe divide into two columns, here's the stuff that I do for me, here's the stuff that I do that produces fruit for God, which one's going to win? I mean, over in this category, I've got Netflix binging, golf, Fortnite for some of you, all these other activities that I do for me. And over here, what am I doing to produce fruit for God? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these activities in column A. I'm saying that if that's our priority, then we need to assess our fruit. Are we producing fruit by our good works, what we do for God? Romans chapter 1 says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit, just as I have seen among other Gentiles. This, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, is the fruit of new believers. It's who we reach. The fruit of new believers. And can I just ask you what may be for some of us a very convicting question? When is the last time you shared your faith with someone who doesn't know Jesus? Just think back. When is the last time I talk with someone who doesn't know Jesus about this faith that I have in God and what a difference it makes in my life? Because if this salvation is so important to us, If this forgiveness from sins that we have that Jesus gives to us frees us from the bondage to sin, gives us a relationship with God, gives us eternal life with God, if that's such a big deal, why would we keep that from anyone? Why would we keep that to ourselves? Paul says that new believers are fruit to God. When's the last time we've gone out to intentionally pursue that kind of fruit in all sorts of different ways? How are we producing the fruit of new believers? There's one more kind of fruit that God expects from us. So we have the fruit of the Spirit, how we live. The fruit of good works, what we do. 
the fruit of new believers, who we reach. And finally, in Hebrews 13, we read this. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And that last phrase there, literally in the, group it is, in the Greek, it is the fruit of the lips, confessing his name. The fruit of our praise. What we say to God and about God. Not just in our singing, although that's a part of it. The fruit of our praise or the fruit of our worship is how we talk to God and about God all the time. And I mean all the time. When the storms of life hit, are we able to praise God in the middle of that storm? When we talk with other people about our God, is it glorifying to Him? When we reference God, when we use His name, is it pleasing and honoring to Him? Is the fruit of our lips praising God? Are we producing that kind of fruit? in our lives. So here's my question for us as we close this morning. How's your fruit? We've talked about four ways that God expects us to be bearing fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of good works, the fruit of new believers, the fruit of our praise. Imagine if Jesus were to walk up to your tree today and on the outside it looks like this flourishing tree with lots of leaves all over it. But as, as you get closer to it, you start to see that there's no fruit on that tree. Is that what some of our lives look like today? Where we are not bearing the fruit that God expects from us as his followers. Maybe at one time we did. Maybe we do a little bit here and there. Maybe on that spectrum of no fruit to fruit, we've got little bits here and there. But somewhere along the way, we've become so distracted by all these different things It could be sports, it could be busyness, it could be shopping, it could be clothes, it could be all these other things that take place in our lives. It could be kids, it could be family. Family can even turn into an idol that keeps us from focusing on what God wants. None of those are bad things in and of themselves unless they keep us from bearing fruit. How's your fruit? Would you just bow your heads and pray with me? I'm going to ask the worship team and the prayer team to join me up front. Heavenly Father, you have shown us what you expect from us. And yet I feel that this reminder today is is kind of a punch in the gut for a lot of people in this room, including me. Because so many times, even the things that I think are fruit are done with selfish motivation. And so, Lord, would you help us reveal these areas of our lives, these branches where where we're not bearing any fruit, where we're not engaged in acts of service and doing good works for you and pointing people to glorify you, where we're not involved in, in sharing our faith with new believers, where the fruit of the Spirit is not in evidence in our lives, where we're not praising you in every situation, no matter what we're in honoring you with our speech, with our communication, everything we do. Lord, would you reveal these areas to us? Would you convict us and would you help us to grow? Help us to have the boldness and the strength and the courage and the focus to be bearing fruit for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.